standing for a prayer. We thank you, Father, for your word, which is ever relevant in every age and every occasion. We thank you that the same spirit who inspired scripture can inspire preacher and hearers alike. May that be so this morning. And may we not only hear, but have grace to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I spent these two services following the vicar in the dress code. I think we're all right now. Uh, we're both blue and white. You'll be glad to see at the front. There was a time, you may remember, when, for those who were here in my days, that I did used to say to people on these hot days that you should divest yourselves within the limits of decorum. Most of you are divested enough. If you did any more, you wouldn't be within the limits of decorum. So stay as you are. Nice to be here. Uh, Margaret and I just uh, come back from uh, a week in Samos. It was a joint week of... Uh, holiday and preaching. I did the preaching, Margaret had the holiday. It was a rather nice mixture. We enjoyed ourselves. And while we were in Samos, it's an island in the eastern Mediterranean, uh, you could see the mainland of, of Turkey. You could just about uh, throw a cricket ball there. I think if you were urgent, it was quite near. And uh, some of the folk went on a trip to the ruins of Ephesus. And as I looked across at the mainland of Turkey, and I was already pondering this sermon I was going to preach this morning from Galatians 6, page 11, 7, 2, which you're looking for, uh, I was reminded the churches to which Paul would send this were across there, not quite so near as the Ephesus that we could almost see, uh, but they were there. And it was a solemn reminder that uh, they were once a thriving community of Christian churches. And I remembered that some years ago in the Keswick Convention tent, a gentleman who ministered in Turkey for a long time, and we sent off Robin and Lorna Mangles at the 915 service to back to Turkey for their ministry. This gentleman gazed around this Keswick Convention tent of 4,000 people or so and said, there are more people, more Christians in this tent than in the whole of Turkey. Solemn thought, a reminder of where we are. And yet that was a place where all these churches came alive, and you and I need to be reminded of that danger. We cannot rest on our laurels. There is no reason why we can assume this land of ours will be always known as Christian and we do need God to be at work. So, uh, we have this uh, special one-off today. I've been asked to speak. Last week we had the marks of a living church. Here, if you like, is the marks of a caring church or a, a loving church. And you'll notice that Galatians 6 begins with the word brothers and it ends with the word brothers and uh, there's that loving note. But it's a very solemn, red-hot letter, is Galatians. It's the only letter Paul never said thank you at the beginning. He was so upset, he never bothered to say thank you. It has no greetings to anybody at the end, and he's still bothered in verses 12 and 13 about the false teachers who don't want the persecution for the cross of Christ. And, and the, the key word in this chapter, and it comes three or four times, is the word bear, B-E-A-R. It's translated differently in the modern version, but it comes uh, three times here and once in chapter 5. Just see it in verse 2, bear each other's burdens or carry each other's burdens. There in verse 5, each one should carry, bear his own load. And it came in chapter 5, verse 10, actually, in a very unusual translation. Verse 10 is translated... Uh, that those who are throwing you into confusion, the one throwing you into confusion, will pay the penalty. We shouldn't mention penalties, should we? I'm sorry about that. It's not the, not the in word for today. Uh, 
We should not pay the penalty anyway. But it's actually the same word. We'll bear it. There will be an inevitable judgment. The, um, uh, our newspaper we, we take, the sports edition yesterday, had simple headlines, Judgment Day. That was through with the football yesterday, as you know. The mind boggles what they would have put as a headline if we got to the final. You imagine what, what, what Armageddon, I suppose. Well, whatever judgment day was yesterday, there is a, a real judgment day. And that's the word bear. And the last time the word bear comes in chapter 5, chapter 6, verse 17. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The, the Greek word is stigmata. Oh, and way down history, there's always somebody comes who supposedly had some spiritual experience and it's seen in the form of the cross on their forehead and in their hands. I don't know. But it's got nothing at all to do with that. Not the remotest. Paul didn't have that kind of stigmata. If you'd seen the Apostle Paul, he would have shown you the marks of where he'd been beaten, the marks of his deprivation, the kind of things you read about in 2 Corinthians 11, where he suffered a great deal. There were the marks. Last week in Samos, we had a, a, a remarkable lady who'd been a missionary in Nigeria for many, many years, and we must have passed when I was visiting uh, the mission field in a, in a similar area. And I can recollect on my first visit to Nigeria, meeting a man who bore in his body the marks of Jesus. He was an elderly gentleman. He would insist on calling me father because I was the chairman of the missionary society where the gospel had come. And he was a lot older than I was, but I was spiritually his father. And very reluctantly, on the meditation, on, on the word of others, he showed me in his body the marks, where 50 years before, I think it was, he had been left as if dead, because he'd left the animistic religion of that area. He'd espoused the course of Christ, and he was beaten for it. And 50 years later, the marks were, were still there. And while nothing approaching that is likely to be a problem to us, here is Paul saying, this is what it costs to be a caring apostle. This is a letter that's desperately concerned about gospel truth. So much so that even here in verse 12 and 13, he's still talking about it. And so what is he saying to us today? A caring church, what are the marks? Well, let's take them, three of them in my notes here. First of all, in verses 1 to 5, the proof that we care. Now, I don't know what was in your mind if ever you do look at the title for a sermon and what you expected of a, a sermon about caring, that it's a church that should look after the older people, that should visit people in need, all that. But that's not what Paul's talking about, but he's talking about caring. It's, first of all, the proof that we care is a true restoration in, in those first two verses. The principle's there in verse 1. Now, please note the principle. If you meet someone in a sin, you should restore him Gently. No way should I minimize the reality of sin. Not to call sin sin is to demonstrate you don't care. If you actually don't bother whether people are found in sin and face the judgment on it, then you don't care for them. Obviously you don't. So you see, here is somebody who cares deeply about somebody who's caught in sin. And it's in interesting, isn't it? We don't know what kind of sin it's talking about. It may just be, in fact, this whole letter, which is a, a dynamic letter... It may be he's referring to somebody who has gone astray theologically. They are the leaders of the group who've actually caused them trouble. It may be that kind of sin. Whatever it is, sin is called sin. But your great aim is to restore, of course it is. And that lovely word to restore is the word, it's the net mending word, that I bring them back 
and I make sure they're brought back, restored, penitent, brought back into the fellowship. Now it is true, and that's why we read Matthew 18, that it's possible at the end of the day that they won't. And that's remarkable words of Jesus. In the same breath, he talks about going out to see the sheep that are lost and the angel, children have angels in heaven. It's all beautiful, touching. And then he goes on to talk about those who will not accept the hand of penitence. They will not be restored, that they should be treated as outcasts. So there's always a possibility that they won't be restored. And it's very letter in Galatians 1, 8 and 9. Paul talks about those who preach another gospel. Even if they're an angel from heaven, they are eternally condemned. I don't think you'll find any stronger words than that. He doesn't say we should be careful because they're bringing in some dangerous teaching. They will be eternally condemned. So the job of the church is to restore such, to bring them to penitence. And you will notice that we are to do it gently. That's very important, isn't it? There's got to be that gentle touch. Jesus said you can't remove the speck in your brother's eye if you've got a beam in your eye. But he does not say you shouldn't try to remove the speck in your brother's eye. We do sort of twist the Bible. There's no suggestion that we shouldn't take sin seriously. But I need to do it gently. If I've dealt with sin in my life, then I shall be able gently to help him. That's why he goes on to say, you see, watch yourself, end of verse 1. You can be tempted. We're all frail. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And that's why the, the, the call in verse 1 is to those who are spiritual. Just possible, Paul is being sarcastic. Just possible, he's referring to these super saints, the people he's always facing, who were the spiritual lot who felt he was lesser than them. And he's saying, okay, if you are spiritual, show it by restoring. But he may just be saying, the mark of a spiritual church is that they're a caring church and a church which restores. There is no wonder greater than a church which takes sin seriously and when people have gone astray from the ways of God, shows love and mercy and restores. It's easy to ignore, as many do, and we don't care. It's easy to reject without any attempt, and we don't care. But actually, to restore, a penitent takes a great deal of love, patience, care, humility. There's the truth. Restoration. He says, look, carry each other's burdens. And in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ, by this shall all men know that you love one another. So a true restoration. Secondly, in verses 3 to 5, what I call a true estimation. For what often causes trouble in communities is arrogance and pride. And so here is Paul saying, and there's a lot of it in this letter, people who thought they were important. Paul has no time a kind of spiritual VIP-ness, you know. They are important people. We bow before the hierarchy. Paul in chapter 2 has very some solemn words about all that lot. And he says, look, I care not about what people think about their position in life. They're only deceiving themselves. We all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Nobody can testify for me on that day. I stand alone. And so my, the task of it, I must test myself. Verse 4, 
and bear my own responsibility in verse 5. When we were in Samos and some of the group went off to Ephesus and I was doing for my Bible readings to these folk, uh, I was actually... I, I never got involved in all the, all the sort of activities, plenty of swimming. Mark, Mark did sort of uh, water aerobics, extraordinary things, aerobics in the pool, and I saw that, that awful. That, that, was, that is a judgment day as far as I'm concerned, water aerobics. Anyway, I didn't do any of that. So while they were all doing things, I was preparing sermons. But we did, we did look at the church in Ephesus where they went to, or the ruins thereof, and the church in Ephesus, take heed, says Paul, when he meets the Ephesian elders, to yourselves and to the flock. And if I am going to be able to restore somebody, I need to have a right view of myself. None of this arrogance and pride. But at the same time, I am responsible. It's all very easy to say the church isn't a caring church. Are we, are we a caring church? Do we contribute towards it? So the... the, the the proof that we care, verses 1 to 5. Now, secondly, verses 6 to 10, the way that we share. I confess that when uh, Paul first started to preach today and we got the theme, I hadn't realized it was gift day, and so I hadn't prepared it with gift day in mind, but uh, verses 6 to 8 are all about giving. And in giving, we demonstrate this is a way we share. This gentleman's long since died. I remember a man who used to sort of complain about my sermons that they were not practical enough. What about that bit? Not practical. But he probably meant they were too doctrinal and too long. But he didn't say that. They were not practical enough. And one day I preached a most practical sermon on money. I've never preached a more practical sermon in my life. And I, I couldn't avoid, I should have done, but I didn't. I couldn't avoid cotton holding, uh, getting hold of him by the door. By the right word is. I couldn't uh, avoid seeing him by the door and saying to him, Tell me, was it practical enough today? He said, a bit near the knuckle today, vicar. Which means you never win, you see. If you're practical, you're a bit near the knuckle. Well, Paul's a bit near the knuckle, isn't it? When he says to them, giving. If you receive instruction, you should give. And the real key word in verse 6 is share. And the word share in the Greek is koinonia. When somebody says to me, come and have fellowship, Philip, what, does he, what do they mean? Sit down, have a cup of coffee, chat with each other. When the Bible talks about fellowship, it's very practical. That word means share, give some money, help, get alongside, use your talent, share with others. And it's a tremendous challenge to the local church, of course, gift day. It's also a challenge to a church and its responsibilities for other churches. Three weeks ago I was preaching in Kendray, in the building that largest put up because of the giving of Fullwood and I was there and it went it was, there's encouragement there it's a tough area but there's encouragement and I thought of the way in which these people were enabled to be a church in a tough area because we had shared we had had fellowship and we'd shown it by giving enabling them and the Fullwood Trust Fund that's got nothing to do with giving money to Fullwood has been there for the last decade or so and I've been to churches where the money is being used in tremendous outreach ministries in areas that uh, wouldn't otherwise have a gospel ministry pray about it and of course you can always help when you can it's the principle of sharing in giving but not only in giving but in verses uh, uh, sorry still in giving verses 7 and 8 you've got this uh, word about sowing and reaping that's a strong word God cannot be mocked it literally means don't 
thumb your nose at God. Strong language. Don't put your thumb to your nose at God. You cannot do it. Now, we would, we would be the first group of people to object to people who took God's name in vain, Christ's name in vain. And yet, if we claim to be Christians and we are not doing what these verses say, we're mocking God. And therefore, there's a spiritual principle that as we give generously, so we shall reap generously, words in 2 Corinthians. And the challenge of these verses, not just to do with money, but if we want to be a blessed church, it will be as we are involved in using our money to win friends in an eternal home, as the New English Bible puts it, using money to win friends in an eternal home. In giving, and secondly, in doing good. That's verses 9 and 10. Uh, it's interesting for two verses because there's lots of doubles in verses 9 and 10 for those who like the balance of Scripture. There are two words for doing. There are two words for good, different words. There are two words for not giving up. And there are two words for time. And what these verses are simply saying is the great challenge to Christians is to do good, to be the kind of caring church that is seen to be doing good. Now, I want you to notice, last week you were here, I, I was elsewhere preaching, but you were here probably for Acts 2, about a living church. And I've always felt that that bit at the end of Acts 2 is to me more exciting in one sense than Pentecost. I mean, 3,000 added to the church in one day is super. But what did Acts 2.42 say? The Lord added to them daily, daily, those who are being saved. Now, if I wanted a, a choice of t two miracles, I'd rather have the daily, those who are being saved. Think what happens in a church where that is happening, a church where regularly, day by day, people are coming, not just being added to the church by coming from other churches, though that happens, but really coming to faith. That's a miracle. That's Pentecost continuing. And I would suggest to you there's a link between the living church of last week and the caring church of this week. For when this kind of activity happens, then we can expect to see the church growing in numbers as well as growing in depth. May I just point out that there are two words for good. One means good, pious good. The other word means good, beautiful. It's a lovely word. Uh, let's not become weary in doing good. Doing beautiful things. Remember the story when Mary anointed Jesus in Bethany with that special ointment in anticipation of the cross? And remember what Jesus said about her? She has done a good thing, bonny thing, beautiful thing. I mean, nobody could expect Mary to pour out all that ointment. She didn't have to. It wasn't an obligation. You could never have blamed her for not doing it. But because she saw what Jesus was going to do, she poured it out. And I'd love to see that spirit of extravagance in Christians. Not just doing the bit, but doing the lot. Pouring it out. When we've been to the foot of the cross, we should want to do it. He gave all. This is a challenge to all of us. In doing good. And the challenge of time is there in verse 10. As we have time. Let's do good to all men. Going back to the story of Mary, there's a verse in that that's always been a, a blessing to me. Do you remember what Jesus said about Mary? She has done what she could. The Lord will never condemn me for not doing what I couldn't. 
what I want to do in my life, whatever ministry I have, I'm able to do what I can. There are many things I can't do. Many problems in the world and the church that are way beyond anything I can do. But there are many things I can do. And I want to be able to stand before him on that day and he says, you've done what you could. Would you? As you have opportunity. He won't condemn you for not doing what you can't. But what about what you can do? Now, isn't verse 10 rather odd when it says, do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers? Doesn't that suggest that he's saying, well, okay, you're kind to Christians, but forget the rest? No. In some ways, of course, the whole message of Matthew 18, you go out to the lost sheep. You go out to the one sheep that's lost. And we're taking that passage to a group of clergymen. One clergyman saying, it's all right, Philip, uh, when you've got 99 in the fold and one on the hill. As far as I'm concerned, there's one in the fold and 99 on the hills. They take a long time uh, to reach. But you get the message. We care for those who are lost. Of course we do. We show kindness. We go out of our way. So what does verse 10 mean? Doesn't it mean that within the family of God there is something special in caring and sharing that the world outside sees? Listen, I've discovered something in retirement. When you're a vicar in action, people tend to tell vicars what they want vicars to hear. You know, they, they sort of put a cotton wool around us and save us and they want to be thought to be the kind of people. So they say, most people, vicars therefore are living a little, you can I'm sure Paul doesn't, but you can. Live in a little world all on your own, you see. But once you retire, you become a different beast. Retired clergy are a different beast, and we therefore here are rather more. And I'm intrigued, for good and ill, how quickly what happens in a church is known in the community around. For good and ill. Things go wrong in the church. I tell you that thousands of non-churchgoers living on the doorstep know about it very quickly. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it brings dishonor to the name of Christ. But equally, the other way around. When things are happening in a church where there's life and vigor, okay, there are cynics who will want to, because they don't want to challenge, but they do see it. It does make an impact. It's a kind of microcosm. So may God help us on this gift day to be in giving, in doing good. That's the way we share. Finally, the things we bear, verse 11 to 18. In a sense, it's the things we bear and the things we don't bear, really. There's the futility of verses 11 to 13. Just, just watch verse 11. I find this very human. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Here's Paul adding his personal signature. This is what says, this is my letter may have been written by somebody else, but it's now his hand. I mean, he's composed it, he's dictated it, but now he puts his hand. Large letters. Now, here's my theory. can't prove this. But I think it's because Paul, one of the things he bore in his body was eyesight trouble. And he bore in his body eyesight trouble since the days of the Damascus Road. For when he was converted, he became blind, temporarily, when he saw spiritually and he always had that problem now that's not just a theory we know from earlier in the Galatian letter he says when I came to you with my problems you would have given me your own eyes so clearly he was eye trouble and I think he had it all his life this I think could even have been the thorn in the flesh but it was there constantly to remind him of an experience and he bore in his body the marks of Jesus. And so in a very human way he says, you see my large handwriting? 
Well, I'm, I'm now pleading with you. Please, don't go the way of the futility, which can easily become the hostility. Bishop of Rochester had a very daring statement recently reminded us that we're fast becoming the Anglican Communion two different churches with completely different Gospels and ultimately cannot all go on living together unless there's a rapid change. Thank God for some who dare to stand up and say so. And the danger is, if we're not careful, that we're going on. What were these people doing in verse 12 and 13? They were trying to get that lovely, freed, gospel church under the cross of Christ back into a system that was going to restrain it. And Paul was so adamant in chapter 2, he would, he would actually look Peter in the eye and condemn him. In chapter 2, he would even say of his beloved friend Barnabas, even Barnabas was led astray. And why was Barnabas and Peter led astray? Because you see, their old friends had come from Jerusalem. The ones who wanted a compromised church and they didn't want to upset. These were their friends. And Paul said, we must stand for gospel things, even if it means a break with friends. And this is the burden we're not meant to bear. Listen, in a communion service, the old, the old prayer book communion service, I think I'm doing midweek communion this week in the old 1662 and I, I love that old book though it's, we don't use it now normally but in that book there's, there's a lovely word in the communion service here are the words, the comfortable words our Saviour Christ says to all who truly turn to him, come to me all who labour and are heavy laden and I will give you rest who were the labouring and heavy laden people he's talking about, in the context no, it wasn't people who were carrying great burdens of sickness, though that's true. It wasn't people who were carrying great burdens of family problems, though that's true. It's people who had the burden of a religion that only made it worse, not better. It's talking to people who were actually were not ready to follow him. And he's saying some pretty solemn words. Well, I have a burden of a religion. I can lift it. I can lift it. And so the futility of that is contrasted with the centrality of the cross. Notice how Paul finishes. That's why we sang when I survey. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Now, isn't it interesting? The Apostle Paul is actually so, back, so battling for the cross that he'll want to say, look, this is the only thing of which I boast. Jeremiah 9 says, don't boast about your wealth, and boast about your knowledge, but boast about this that you know me. Paul, even after he was converted, could have boasted about many other things. Could have boasted about the many sermons he'd preached, the many miles he'd travelled, the things he'd suffered. But I only boast in the cross, which makes me exactly the same as everybody else. In about ten minutes, a quarter of an hour, you'll be kneeling at the communion rail. All of us, together, the same place. And we glory in the cross, which is our only hope. I just uh, reread uh, a chapter of John Stott's The Cross of Christ. If ever you come across this second-hand copy, get it. I seem to remember when it first came out some years ago, we sold quite a lot here. And you may pick it out again. It's a, it's a heavy read in some ways, but it's a great read. But, but there's one last chapter, just about Galatians, all the time in this letter that the cross is mentioned. And it's dominant, dominant, dominant. He's battling for the cross. For example, chapter 3, 
Christ became a curse for us on the cross so that we may not be cursed. He took our curse. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, chapter 2, verse 20. It keeps on coming and it ends. God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus through whom the world's been crucified to me and nothing else matters. Circumcision, uncircumcision, we are the new Israel of God. No, these other things don't matter. It's only the cross. And that's why he would fight. That's why in chapter 3 he would say about these Galatians, oh foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? So, here we come back. Of course a caring church must care about people at every aspect of their need. But the real caring church, the difference between a caring church and a caring community is that we care about people's eternal destiny. We care about the truth of the gospel. And this church, I trust, will ever be that kind of caring church. Recently, as I uh, was preparing a sermon, I came across a a little book, I hadn't read it for years, called The Preacher's Portrait, again by John Stott, uh, who's been my great mentor. And John Stott's The Preacher's Portrait has got some lovely chapters about how preachers should be, what they should be, messengers and stewards. It's, It's a lovely thing. And right at the very end comes a little poem that I'm going to read just one, just one verse of a poem, which he discovered in a, in a vestry in a church. And he uses it primarily as a preacher. I'm going to use it for all of us, a preacher certainly. This preacher needs to hear it. And as I, when I finish reading this, Peter Carly is going to lead us in prayer because I want the, so straight into the prayer. As we come to the, cro- the cross, as we come uh, this morning, listen to these words of, of, that John Stott found in a vestry, in a church, about the cross and myself in relation. It's a preacher, but it's for all of us. When telling thy salvation free, let all absorbing thoughts of thee my heart and soul engross. And when all hearts are bowed and stirred beneath the influence of thy word hide me behind thy cross.